0: When was the last time you thought about death? The last time you thought about the death of your pets, your friends, your family, yourself, your kids? Probably a while, right? Because it's uncomfortable to think about, that's okay. But what if I told you that avoiding thinking about something that is inevitable and will happen to you, to me, to everyone we know, What if I said that avoiding that was making the time that you're alive less enjoyable, less present, less exciting, less joyful, less loving? Seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? Reframing death and the acceptance of death is something that has been top of my mind for quite some time. It's certainly something that has helped me immeasurably when it comes to my own mental health and my health outcomes over the years. And that's what we're talking about with my podcast guest, Dr. Rachel Menzies. She's co-author of the book, Mortals, How the Fear of Death Shaped Human Society. Before we get there, we are going to need to play some ads because uh, podcasts are free to listen to, but they're not free to make. Uh, Just a heads up here, in the coming weeks, I'm happy to say that we are about to offer an ad-free version of this podcast, and so I'm going to let you know more when we get closer to that, but it is on the way. I'm very excited that I'm going to be able to offer you that, but for now, we still need to keep the lights on. We need to keep all the people that work on the show paid, so you might hear some ads. If you do, thank you. You're helping us pay the bills. If not, we'll get straight to Rachel.
3: fears of death affect the kind of treatment people get at the end of life. In general, in medicine, death is seen as a failure. you failed if you've let a patient die, as opposed to seeing death as something that happens to all of us. And we know that the higher a doctor or a surgeon or health practitioner, the higher their fear of death the less likely they are to discuss end-of-life choices with the dying person, the less likely they are to initiate things like advanced care directives to help the person, you know, make those plans for themselves. So if we don't deal with these kinds of fears, unfortunately it leads to people dying in ways that they might not wish to die. Most Australians want to die at home, but very few Australians actually get that. Most Australians die in hospital. And part of that comes from not having these conversations If we were able to start accepting death, it would lead to a complete shift in the way that we respond to the dying and probably the quality of those last moments for the dying person.
0: That is clinical psychologist and author, Dr Rachel Menzies, and this is Better Than Yesterday. Welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osha Ginsburg. Thank you for being here. This is a podcast that is here to make your day today better than it was yesterday. That is the name of the show, that it, and it does what it says on the box. We've been here since 2013, and every episode comes with that guarantee. I'm here three times a week, Mondays and Wednesdays. I'm here with the guest. Fridays, I'm here with you. Episodes go back years, and there's hundreds of interviews to listen to, and so many interviews, so many chats to listen to on a Friday when I'm talking with you, and- um. Yeah. Dig in. There's a lot to get through. If you've never listened to the show before, I'm Osher Ginsberg. I sometimes uh, count roses in a whispery voice on television. I sometimes scream, take it off very loudly at a giant singing pavlova on television. Sometimes I write books uh, four times a week. I'm lifting heavy weights. And every day I'm a grateful husband to my wife, Audrey, and our two kids. And I'm uh, I'm really grateful that I'm here with you today. Very grateful that I get to come and see you. Very soon we're doing some live shows. Brisbane and Melbourne, we've managed to find venues. We're getting super close to locking them down. We're just kind of nailing out a few bugs because we're trying to do two shows in each city. So we're just trying to figure out the best way that we can make that happen. But I'm coming to see you and I hope you can come and see me and we can have a a good time together. Brisbane and Melbourne. I think Melbourne's the first week of April, Brisbane's the third week of April. So I'll let you know more as soon as I can. If you ever need to get in touch with me, send Osher email at gmail.com. You can also find me on Instagram, drop me a DM there. It's always nice to hear from you. Let me tell you about my guest today clinical psychologist and author, Dr. Rachel Menzies. She focuses her work on how our inevitable death shapes our lives. She's co-written three books with her dad on the subject, including, I love the titles, Curing the Dread of Death, Theory, Research, and Practice, Tales from the Valley of Death, reflects from psychotherapy on fear and death, and the latest book she's written with her father, Mortals, How the Fear of Death Shaped Human Society. And that's the the kind of nexus of our conversation today. And it's it's fascinating. In between writing lots of books, she has a busy practice where she sees clients as a psychologist. And in addition to that work, Rachel currently works as a postdoctoral research fellow and guest lecturer at the University of Sydney. Denial of death was something that was a problem for me and it w- was one of the things at the basis of a, a lot of trauma and a lot of pain that I was I was going through with my mental health and being an acceptance of death and my own mortality and the mortality indeed of everyone and everything around me was a, was a big move and a hard move for me to make, but it was a very, very important move and delivered me from a lot of discomfort. So I'm grateful to have this conversation with Rachel about it end of life and the, the last years of life have been visible to me. I'm, um, you know, like everybody I saw, I was lucky, I guess I saw my older relatives grow old and more frail and less mobile over their lives. And, um, I guess up close and personal I, about, I was about 19 when I was delivering groceries for pensioners in my band van that doubled as a grocery van before the Coles and Woolies trucks that would come all the time. I would deliver groceries for the Coles out of Canberra. And if I delivered to 40 people, I'd say 30 of them were pensioners. They were women mostly because women live longer than men. And I'd knock on their door, say, Hey, our groceries are here. And they'd be in the same chair watching the same TV show that they'd been week in, week out for a year. And I'm like, Is this, is this life? Is, is this it? You kind of retire and then just sit in a big comfy chair and watch TV until you die? Is is that it? Is it? Not many of these people weren't very mobile, which is why they were getting groceries delivered. And and I thought to myself, I don't think that's what I want. I don't think that's what I want for my, myself. I certainly don't want to get on that glide path of just ever decreasing physical activity to the point where I just sit there and, and watch a screen for the last decades of my life, and eventually, you know, lose the ability to move or toilet or walk or you know connect with people and just sit there in zombie mode. I'd, I don't want that. That's my choice, but I do not want that. The way, and I'll I'll say this to you now, the way I want this to go is fit, 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 dead. That's it. I don't want some sort of weird interim twilight zone. I don't want that. Uh, Which is why I lift heavy weights four times a week because I'm nearly 50 and I want to maintain vitality. I I do not want that. And I, I, I guess I've been thinking a lot about, you know, in the last, you know, 10 years or so, I've been thinking a lot about my own death. And I am, I think about my own death all the time. I think about my own death every day, which Rachel and I talk about. And it's, it's, it's really important. But, you know, r- more recently, since I, in my more recent years, when I've met Georgia, who's now nearly 18, and Wolfie, who's on the way to being three now, I guess, I am confronted with their mortality, you know. Every parent knows when they send their their kid off with their peas for the first time, you know, fucking hell. Or when they go out with their mates to a big party somewhere on the fringes of the city, you're like, fuck, come back safe, <laughs> you know. It's, it's hard being faced with the mortality of your kids, knowing that that risk is there. It's really hard. That's certainly with, you know, when they're, when they're little, I mean, Jesus Christ. But it is a fact that none of us, you know, that I think Rachel and I speak about this. Nobody that died in a car accident today left for work that morning thinking that was how I was going to end up. No one who died in an accident at work kissed their husband goodbye and said, see you, honey, I won't see you tonight because I'm going to trip and fall and bang my head on something and that's the last time. This is the last moment you'll ever get with me as I walk out the door. No one thinks that. It just happens like, like that. And we avoid that because it's tr- tricky and painful and difficult and uncomfortable to think about. But it is reality and Dr. Rachel Menzies is here to talk to us about why it is important to think about that. Certainly when your kids, I guess, are being annoying or they're being infuriating or they're being frustrating, you're like, you know what, you're really only going to be this young today. Tomorrow you're going to be older and think about the world differently. So I'm, rather than miss this moment, I'm going to grab this moment because it's gone forever. And that might make you late, I'll make you you know, whatever. But I personally feel it's important to do that, those sorts of things, within reason, obviously. But when it's bedtime, it's bedtime. But, yeah, stopping and taking the time to do this, stuff like that, it's its really important because what else, what else are we living for, you know? I'll stop chatting and we'll get straight into this. It's a good conversation. It's a powerful conversation. If you've recently lost someone, it might be, uh, what's the word? an imposition to think about things, particularly if you're in the middle of a grieving process, but I'd encourage you to, to listen because uh, Dr. Rachel Menzies speaks with great compassion and great empathy uh, for people at all stages of life and towards the end of life. I hope you enjoy it. This is Dr. Rachel Menzies. How you going, Rachel?
3: Hi, good. How
0: are you? Yeah, good. I'm grateful we can talk about this because this is uh, this is really interesting the work that you're, you're doing. And I really wanted to do this show with you because it was something that was brought up to me by one of the psychologists I went to go and see when I was really, really, really sick mm. because I think the denial of death is a, a really interesting thing. Once I started looking into it myself, I understood, oh, right, oh, okay, right, <laughs> I understood there was a, a lot going on. Could, let's just start. Where, where in the world are you right now?
3: I'm in Sydney. Oh,
0: beautiful, beautiful Sydney. And this is where you you studied, right? How did you how did you come to the work you're doing?
3: Yeah, it's it's a good question. So, I think it's something I've always been interested in. Ever since I was a kid, I was always really interested in you know, even things we might not automatically think about as being related to death, but things like ancient Egypt and the pyramids and mummification and all of that sort of stuff. And then when I went to Sydney Uni I was studying psychology but also ancient history and I was fascinated with ancient history and all of the different ways death has been kind of explored by different cultures across our history and then from the psychological perspective as I started to learn about different mental health conditions and my dad Ross Menzies who also wrote the book we started to talk together about the different ways that fears of death seem to come up in a lot of different mental health conditions so for me personally, it was something I was always really fascinated by. But then this kind of bridging of the work I was doing in ancient history, looking at our species as a whole, and then also what I started to learn about in clinical psychology as well.
0: So a, your dad sounds like he was interested in, in death for a very long time. There must have been some fun conversations when you were little.
3: <laughs> definitely, definitely. It's never a, never a normal you know <laughs> dinner table conversation in our house.
0: Well, I find that because both my folks were, were doctors as well and they talked about death all the time. Like they would just kind of casually come home and say, oh, yeah, we had to, you know, this happened at work today. And, you know, mm. as kids, you're like, what? And mum would just be like, because mum was an anaesthetist, so she's so seen it. So many times, she's like, "Yeah, Mm. it's just something that happens to all of us." Just, but for some reason, that didn't stick. (laughs) Once I became an adult, was there ever? I'm interested because I'm, you know, two of four boys. None of us followed our parents into the medical field. Was there ever an option for you to not follow in your dad's footsteps?
3: Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. It was always, as in definitely, there was an option (laughs) to not to not follow him. There were other things I was interested in. Ancient history was the only other thing that ever really seemed like a other good option. But ever since I was young, I was just genuinely really interested in psychology and became more and more interested in it as I actually started to study it at uni.
0: At what point do humans and I'm going to say this right now, in our culture, in our westernised kind of Anglo culture, because I know that's different to other cultures, at what point do do humans in our culture tend to start to realise that there's an end to this?
3: It's a really good question. So people often assume that we don't really understand death until we get older, but from as young as the age of three, children start to develop their understanding of death and start to show fears of it. So essentially, between the ages of about three to nine, children develop their understanding of death in stages. So first, they start to understand that death is irreversible, that once something dies, it doesn't come back to life. And then gradually, they start to understand that death happens to all living things and that I'm also a living thing. And so it's going to happen to me too one day. So by the age of about nine or 10, children have a pretty well-developed understanding of death. And as their understanding develops, so too do the sorts of things they start to fear. So around the same age they're starting to understand death, they start to worry about things like monsters hiding under the bed, for example, or dogs, or being separated from mum or dad. So by the age of 10, most children know that at some point they're going to end up in a grave.
0: There's different ways you can go about, often when kids are little, that's usually around the time that maybe your grandparent passes away or maybe uh, a pet that you've had since before you had kids is now a 13-year-old Labrador that goes to the vet and never comes back. What does the research say about conversations saying, oh, I don't know, Banjo the doggy's gone to the farm, rather than actually having that conversation with a little kid? How old can you have a conversation with a kid about why we don't go to grandma's house anymore? What are the side effects of maybe not telling them the truth?
3: It's a really good question. It's something that we definitely need more research on because the research on these sorts of things in children, we have much less research on on fears of death in children than we do on adults. But what we do know from some of the studies that have been done seem to suggest that talking to children about death in a very matter-of-fact way seems to help them develop a more kind of balanced healthy approach to death so from the research we have talking about death in in kind of euphemisms as we often do even to other adults as adults seems to not be as helpful as we might think it is
0: and why is that is that where it starts the the denial of death does it start when we say and when we lie to our children and say oh no the goldfish has gone to the sea
3: yeah, look, it's it's very possible. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, we would go on on road trips and things. And if we passed a dead animal on the road and I would ask my dad, what's that? He would tell me, oh, it's just a stuffed toy. It's a stuffed animal. Don't worry about it. So this is something we all have this tendency to do. But I do think it then makes it really hard for death to be seen as something normal, natural. And children, you know, will figure it out on their own eventually, But if we can have these kind of conversations early on which normalise death, see it as something to kind of accept and process rather than something to deny, it opens up the floor for having these kind of healthy conversations about it.
0: How do you speak to kids in a matter-of-fact way? What is a way to talk about this? You, uh, You got a degree in psychology. How do you bring it up with a kid without lying? Because I'm guessing when your dad was saying, your dad, you know, Ross Menzies, the, you know, the founding director of the anxiety disorders clinic, like even he tells his little daughter, oh no, no, it's just a stuffed animal. His uncomfortable feelings about the death is preventing him from having a conversation with his daughter, a matter of fact conversation. So how can we firstly centre ourselves before we talk to our kid about death?
3: Yeah, yeah. So look, I think the first thing to recognise is that it's normal for there to be some anxiety talking about it, that it's this kind of natural human urge to want to avoid the things that make us feel uncomfortable, and that includes these kinds of conversations, so recognising that it's, it's natural to feel anxious about talking about death, but that not having that conversation unfortunately won't change the outcome at all. So recognising that and then also just answering, I guess, the children's questions in a, in a really matter-of-fact way, you know, in terms of saying things like, oh, they've, they've died. What does that mean? Well, it means that they they were alive for this many years and at the moment they're now buried at this cemetery. Why don't we go visit the cemetery and talk more about it? Just kind of opening up the ground, I guess, for those conversations. And, of course, you know, kids might just be happy with that answer. Some kids will be more inquisitive and want to ask more mm. and that's completely appropriate. But giving that kind of answer, I don't think there's anything wrong with
0: I can see how it starts to get towards where your book takes us, how the fear of death shaped human society. This idea of wanting to put distance between us and the thing that makes us feel uncomfortable, or put things between us and the thing that makes us feel uncomfortable, has shaped certainly our super consumerist individual individualistic society. And I wonder where it would be without it, but I'm kind of fascinated to see when did this kind of begin? When did we start to be, oh, we don't talk about it. We, you know, here, buy this thing, here, have this. It's going to be better if you own this thing.
3: Yeah, yeah. So in the 1970s, Ernest Becker, who was an anthropologist, published the book, The Denial of Death, which won him the Pulitzer Prize. And Becker argued that essentially all of human culture is created as one big elaborate defense against death. So, I as an individual will one day die, but my culture is presumably going to live on beyond me. That includes things like the values of my culture, such as values like consumerism, materialism. This includes things like political beliefs, religious beliefs, that the entirety of human culture is created to give us a sense of significance and meaning so that we don't feel like we're just one of the other animals on this earth. And so in... in Our current culture, you know, a big part of culture is is buying things, buying luxury goods, high-end products that make us feel like we're significant people who have lived well according to our culture. And we have seen this demonstrated in experimental studies as well, where you might give someone a, a really subtle reminder of death. So you might give them two questions about death in a packet of 100 questions, for example, And the people who have been given these really subtle reminders of death are much more interested in buying expensive products than those who have not had those subtle reminders of death. So this seems to suggest that one of the unconscious reasons that we try and consume, that we try and live better than the other people on our street, is this unconscious fear of death that motivates us to try and create a big grand life that gives us a sense of significance and a vague sense of immortality that I'll be remembered for living this grand big life after I die. And of course, this comes at a huge cost to the planet, you know, that this is driving climate change and all all kinds of other things.
0: To go even further back beyond, I guess, mass manufacturing and even agriculture even the idea of creating surplus food that you could then sell to a neighboring village and have a a little more shells or clams or sheep or whatever it is you used to as the idea that one day this all ends and i will no longer be forever and ever and ever it was such a frightening thing that i'd be really interested to know if your research or you know what you and, fa- you and your father have worked together Was the creation of religions and the idea of an afterlife or reincarnation a response to our denial of death?
3: Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think religions might certainly have other benefits outside offering some kind of solution to death, but certainly some kind of solution to death is the common ingredient found in all major religions that we know of. Not one religion that we know of doesn't offer any kind of solution, whether that's reincarnation, the eternity of the soul, heaven or paradise, or anything like that. And this stretches back for thousands and thousands of years, the oldest religions we know of. Uh, I mean, the Egyptians are a good example of this, where the pyramids are tombs. They're huge tombs. The reason they're built into that kind of triangular shape is because it was believed that that kind of shape would act as a, a ladder to the stars, basically a ladder to help the spirit travel to their equivalent of heaven more easily. Of course, mummifying bodies in ancient Egypt was to stop them decaying. This took 70 days to mummify a body. It was a huge project and it was to prevent the body decaying so it would live on in an afterlife. So some of the oldest religious beliefs or rituals that we know of centre on this fear. And not one religion seems to offer nothing to followers in terms of solving their fear of death.
0: That is absolutely fascinating that every single religion has a solution to death. It's like the high fructose corn syrup uh, <laughs> of the American supermarket. It's in everything. <laughs> it re- right. It's in everything. <laughs> I never thought about it like that. Because I remember, like, I once worked with someone who, um, oh, let's just say, you know, that they, they went to a very, very big church that had ATMs in the lobby and they gladly oh, wow. paid a tithing, you know. And we worked really closely, we worked every day. And he said, like, so you don't believe in heaven or hell? I said, no. So what happens when you die? So I just, you know, I'm, you know, matter. I just become other parts of the universe and nothing could be more incredible. And I just return to, you know, other atoms. that And he was like, but what if you're wrong? Wouldn't you just want to believe it in case you're wrong? He was just so, and he was nearly my age. He was like in his 40s. He was just so completely convinced that he was willing to give 10% of his money. He was willing to take hours of his week every week to go and do this thing with his family and lead youth groups, all kinds of stuff, because he was just worried what would happen when it all ended. And I I wonder, like, wouldn't it be great to be free from that? (laughs) That seems like a a big fear to carry with you.
3: Mm, mm. The interesting thing about religion is the religions that are the mainstream religions today aren't mainstream religions, coincidentally religions like Christianity um, or Islam or Hinduism offered better promises of an afterlife than the previous religions that were in that area so Christianity is a really good example of this where the other religions that were in the Mediterranean at the time when Christianity became so popular they offered immortality they offered an eternal soul but they didn't promise you that you would actually be kind of physically reborn, so to speak, in heaven. Your soul would be eternal, but your body wouldn't really be there in this afterlife. And then Christianity came along and promised, no, no, not only does your soul stay immortal, but also you'll be reunited with loved ones, your whole body will be there with you. And so it's this interesting example of how religions that offered kind of more, (laughs) like, upper class, more kind of, you know, better quality afterlife. Closer
0: to the front of the plane. You know, the biggest seat, the reclining. The first class. Yeah. (laughs) We don't want to be in the back here and we don't want to be flying scoot to heaven. No, no, no. no. I want want the the Emirates suite with my own shower.
3: That's right. Those are the religions that have stuck around today.
0: Wow. I understand that you guys are really digging on this thing, but, hey, have you heard about if you follow this particular story, you get this (laughs) And this, but wait, there's more. You'll also <laughs> see everyone you loved again. Don't you want to be a part of it? Wow. And when it comes to wanting to live longer than ourselves, how early did we start to realize that, hey, if I paint on this wall, this will still be here even when I'm dead. Or if I create this pottery, this will still be here when I'm dead because I've never seen a piece of clay dye or if I carve in this tree or if I uh, build this thing or paint this, build a bridge or whatever. When did we start doing that as humans?
3: One quick example that comes to mind is in the last week I went to, we have at Sydney near the Chuck Wing Museum, which is a fantastic collection of artefacts and art. And when I was there, I saw this skull that was 9,000 years old and it was a, a skull that had been plastered with mud to make one of the first ever examples of a 3D portrait. And it was believed that this was done to keep the spirit of the ancestor alive. So that was 9,000 years ago, people keeping the skulls of their ancestors and trying to plaster them to make it look like them. So this is a really ancient problem and a really ancient thing we've tried to create solutions for. Another example being... The oldest great work of literature that we have, the oldest surviving work, is the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is a 4,000-year-old Babylonian poem carved into stone. And the Epic of Gilgamesh tells the story of King Gilgamesh, who witnesses the death of his close friend, is distraught by this death and by his sudden realisation that he too is mortal, And this leads him to go on this lengthy quest to try and find the secret to immortality before he eventually has to give up and accept that he's a mortal man. And so for at least 4,000 years, this has been the central theme of human stories, human writing, and then we have artefacts close to 10,000 years old, which show attempts to try and preserve the memories of the dead. So this is not a new problem for our species.
0: But as, as you mentioned that the fear of death and our culture is a, in many ways, it's a product of our fear of death, like one person by yeah. themselves, very vulnerable out in the wild, uh, 40 people working together can probably defend themselves, keep each other warm and keep each other alive. So I understand how it helped us thrive and be safe uh, by learning to work together learning to cooperate and all these things that have shaped us as as a species to to help us stay alive you know this is an every every creature has mm. a want to not die every insect every bug everything every plant everything that's alive wants to stay alive but I can see how our uh, our very culture our very being our very ways our, our brains have evolved is a response to keeping us alive Yet it seems like, as you mentioned earlier, we're starting to come up against the upper limits of how much our planet can actually deal with that. Uh, you mentioned that denial of death and fear of death is leading to things like climate change. How how can we start to put those two together? Can we start to paint a picture for people to listen listening to like how does a fear of death drive consumerism? How do how might people not be realizing that them seeing an email going, "Hey, this top for twenty bucks can be at your house by two p.m. if you order now." How can they go, well, that's just me wanting a new top. That's not me not wanting to die. How can we start to explain to people what's happening there?
3: I guess the first thing to realise is that a lot of these fears are unconscious. If I can start to look at my behaviours and ask myself, why am I really doing this? It can help us question whether we want to be doing these things and whether there might be a better way to live. So, for instance, you know, with over-consumerism, why am I wanting to have... nicest house on the block why am i wanting to be the most successful person in my company is it possibly because that gives me a sense of importance it gives me a sense of significance and sometimes people will say this people will say things like you know at my funeral i want to be remembered as this kind of person i want to be remembered as someone who was hardworking. you know those sorts of things in terms of other aspects of climate change overpopulation is a really big one where overpopulation comes from this decision to want to extend the self through having another child. There might, of course, be other reasons for wanting to have children, but a big one is wanting to pass on my own genetic material to the next generation so that part of me lives on. And again, we know this is backed up in research where those subtle reminders of death make people want to have more children. So starting to look at Why do I really want to do these things? Is it just because my culture tells me to do this? Do I just want to be slaving away at work because my culture tells me this is what I should be doing? And if the answer is yes, are there more authentic ways that I could spend my finite moments on earth? Would I rather actually be growing fruit and veg in my garden rather than putting in this extra time at work to try and become a person of value, a person of significance, Are there things I can be doing differently in my life purely because I authentically want to do them rather than doing it because my culture dictates this is what you need to do as a successful member of this culture?
0: There's probably a balance between those those two things. I mean, we also live in a society that requires cash to do things like make sure water comes out of the tap and the heating and the cooling stay on. So there's got to be a balance in there. I mean, I would love to stay at home and grow veggies all day. It'd be amazing. (laughs) The mortgage wouldn't get paid and we'd have to move house, but (laughs) there's got to be a balance there. When you put your psychology hat on, how do you, what would you say to people that trying to find that balance?
3: Yeah, this is where I think the idea of really trying to cultivate death acceptance and remembering your own mortality is really important. So imagining, you know, when I'm on my deathbed, how will I have felt about my life? Because you're right, bills have to get paid. There are certain things I have to do to function in in society. But when I look back on my life, what will I have wished I'd have done? Maybe I wish I took more time off work and travelled or spent more time with family. Maybe I wish I, you know, maybe there was something completely different that I wish I did that I never did thinking about if i only have 800,000 hours on earth how do i want to spend that time some of it will have to be spent fulfilling responsibilities for instance but not all of it and this is where the idea if i can bring my own mortality and impermanence to mind even on a daily basis it helps me carve out the kind of life that i'm going to be less likely to regret when i'm dying and one of the one of the top 5 regrets of the dying is having worked as much as they did. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> this is a real problem that people face and it's it's a normal it's a normal thing to do it's very easy to block out death and pretend we're going to live forever. But if I know at one point it's all going to end, can I live in a way that makes me feel like I'm living a meaningful life, tasting delicious food, watching good TV, doing stuff that makes me feel like I'm having a rich existence rather than being blind to the fact that it's all going to end one day?
0: For people who've never done that, just the idea of like contemplating your own death is terrifying. You're asking people to do it every day. Is there a way to do, I mean, like there's a way to do journaling. There's a way to do gratitude. There's a pretty simple tried and true way. Is there a way to contemplate your own death? Yeah. I mean, there's,
3: there's, a couple of different ways. So the idea of memento mori, which translates to remember you will die, is a really old ancient idea. This idea of trying to surround yourself with reminders of death. So in 14th and 15th century Europe, this would be done through having you know, a skull on your desk, whether that's a real skull or, or an artificial skull, having images of death in your environment. So this is quite an ancient tradition of surrounding yourself with visual reminders of death to help you live the kind of life you want to live. Today, of course, we have the benefit of modern technology, which can make that a lot easier. So there are various apps you can download to help with this. One is an app that we've developed called Kick the Bucket, which twice a day prompts you with a quote about death, again, to kind of cultivate this daily acceptance and reminder of death. So there's all kinds of ways you can do it. The death positive movement is also a more recent example of this where this was a movement that started about 10 or 20 years ago encouraging people to open up conversations about death. And so there have been things like death cafes which have popped up in thousands of places around the world where people will go to a cafe with strangers and just talk about death in a non-judgmental way or host your own event like a death over dinner. If you look into the death positive movement, there are a lot of different ways that we can start to normalise death for ourselves and cultivate that acceptance.
0: I think, I think I might have been involved in an early incarnation of that at a conference like about 10 or 12 years ago. I remember sitting around in this kind of late-night chat once with about 40, 50 people in the room. And, um, yeah, I remember sitting in this room at this conference up in uh, Northern California, and I heard this stat that blew my mind. In North America at the time, this is in 2011, In North America at the time, 98% of all healthcare costs accrued over your entire life happened in the last two years of your life. And the question was, what else could you do with that money? And Mm. the healthcare in North America is not cheap, all right? So bear in mind that six months of chemo is probably a couple of hundred thousand dollars. What else could you do with that money? And what are you getting for your money? And that was the basis of the start of the conversation of, well, what if we thought about death differently? What if we got to a particular point of age, achievement, and went, all right, from here on, whatever happens. And then that wealth or whatever that you've accrued or that can go to somewhere else, go to charity, go to your family, go go wherever. And I, I guess I was lucky mm. to have that conversation back then, but I don't know, it's a very privileged white person thing to have that Opportunity and have that option to have that healthcare to spend the money on. But that sort of thing really started to blow my mind. What would our healthcare system look like if we accepted death? What would oncologists do for a living if we accepted death slightly more, even not all the way, but slightly more in our community?
3: It's a really good question because we know that fears of death affect the kind of treatment people get at the end of life. So we know, for example, that in general, in medicine, death is seen as a failure. You failed if you've let a patient die, as opposed to seeing death as something that happens to all of us. And we know that the higher a doctor or a surgeon or health practitioner, the higher their fear of death, the less likely they are to discuss end of life choices with the dying person, the less likely they are to initiate things like advanced care directives to help the person, you know, make those plans for themselves. So If we don't deal with these kinds of fears, unfortunately it leads to people dying in ways that they might not wish to die. You know, dying in hospital, for example, most Australians want to die at home, but very few Australians actually get that. Most Australians die in hospital. And part of that comes from not having these conversations. So I completely agree with you. If we were able to start accepting death, it would lead to a complete shift in the way that we respond to the dying and probably the quality of those last moments for the dying person.
0: I've talked about this on the show before, but we, um, we lost our mum to, uh, to cancer a couple of years ago now. And as I mentioned before, both my parents were doctors. And we found out a really fascinating stat. Of all the people that refuse chemotherapy, something colossal, something like 80% of them were doctors. Wow. Because <laughs> they know. Because mm. they know what it is. And mum, initially, she went through one round, and it kind of worked. But when they offered a second round, she's like, nah, nah, I'm good. I'm all right. This Mm. is, this is fine. And faced the, I mean, it wasn't fine, fine. Like, there was a moment There was, you know, obviously, you know, you're going to die. And we were all there with her, and we all processed it together as we, as we got through to the end with her. But, I'm, I was just so in awe that she did that. And she went, no, no, thank Because I've heard people go through like six rounds, seven mm. rounds, 10 years of it. And, you know, for, for what quality of life? You mentioned that most people die in hospital even though they'd rather die at home. Do you think as a community, at least here in Australia, we, we can't really talk about too many other countries, but at least here in Australia, do you think we, I mean, we're for a long time we were cut off, at least men were cut off from the start of life. We were cut off from birth. the woman we loved, she went away, we didn't go anywhere near the hospital and then suddenly, you know, there she is, there's a baby, hello, welcome. We were completely cut off from this enormously very natural part of life. Do you think we're also cut off from the other end?
3: Definitely, definitely. And I agree that that is quite specific to our culture. And this has changed a lot over time as well. For most of our history, the dead were buried near us. Until very recently, if you had lost a parent or an uncle or a grandparent, they were buried in your neighbourhood, you know, in the church graveyard, for example. You would walk past their body frequently. But as the population has boomed, we now bury the dead in whole cities, basically, like Rookwood we have here in Sydney. I think it's the largest Cemetery in the southern hemisphere, an entire suburb for the dead with their own postcode, and you have to go on a bit of a trek to get there. So, we now no longer have our dead near us. The dead, like we said, die in hospitals or in nursing homes rather than dying in the home as they have for thousands and thousands of years. And our culture, you know, as a result, hasn't been able to develop very healthy attitudes towards death. In other parts of the world, they handle this really differently. So, for example, in Indonesia, They will have the dead bodies of loved ones in the home with them for up to several years. They will be having their dead grandfather sleeping in the bed in the room next door. They will dress the dead. They'll put sunglasses on them, put a cigarette in their mouth, take photos, take selfies with the corpse. And that's not to say that we should all be out there digging up our loved ones and posing with them. But in other parts of the world, they don't see death as something that needs to be kept separate. They see it as something that's very much intertwined with life.
0: Yeah, I get that just because it's the way that we do it and our culture might not be the best way to do it. And when mum passed and then, as often is the case, then Wolf was born not long after that, there's so much celebration around the beginning of our lives of what it is to be a human. But we tend to want to conveniently forget and ignore that there's another end. Mm. There's, there's And every single person, as Wayne Coyne from The Flaming Lips said, everyone you know someday will die. We just don't want to know about it. We don't mm. want to know about it. We we want to put things between us and, and it. Talking about being cut off from death or being de- in denial of death, even just the amount of death we've been talking about might have already made a, a few people quite uncomfortable remembering either people that passed or un- looking at their children, understanding their children will die. That's a hard thing mm. to be with, you know. How can we start to, to use this fear of death to enrich today? Because I don't, I've don't. i got to go to a meeting later on. I've got to drive into the city. It's raining in Sydney. Who the fuck knows what's going to happen? You know, I ride bicycles, I ride motorbikes. Like every day I leave the house, I make sure I let everybody know, I love you so much because... No one knows. Mm. Not every single person that died in a car accident today left their house this morning thinking they were going to have dinner at their table, you know?
3: Mm. Mm.
0: (laughs) So how can we use that fear of death to enrich our lives?
3: I think partly what happens is we forget that we were never guaranteed to be here in the first place. We all kind of move through life feeling a bit ripped off at the idea of death because we feel we were always entitled to life when actually that's not true that the reason you and I are here is because we were lucky enough to have our own unique string of DNA come up in the genetic lottery. So Richard Dawkins opens his book on weaving the rainbow with the words, you and I are going to die and that makes us the lucky ones. Most people are never going to die because they're never going to be born. For us to be here, our parents had to meet, their parents had to meet, and so on and so on for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And if at any point... You know, my great, 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 great grandparent died before being able to reproduce. I wouldn't have been here. And for me to be here, my own unique string of DNA had to come up. So we've won the genetic lottery. And so if we can try and see life from this perspective, that the chance of us ever being here in the first place is less than one in a billion, it can make the idea of death not seem so awful. Can I cultivate this gratitude for existence to appreciate that I only get so many hours on this earth and I'm lucky to have each hour I get, whether I get hit by a bus today, whether I die in my 80s, each hour I get on this earth, can I be grateful for it because I was never guaranteed it?
0: That's a lot to try to do every day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's a full-time but I, job. <laughs> but I get it's worth it. When I first got were presented as quite quite sick, quite ill, dealing with like episodes of paranoid delusion and episodes of psychosis. it was fucking horrible. Mm-hmm. and my, my doc was trying to talk to me about denial of death. How can facing your own death and being with your own death improve your overall mental health?
3: We've got growing evidence that a lot of mental health conditions stem from this fear of death. So if you think of phobias, for example, all of the common phobias, fears of flying, fears of heights, fears of driving, fears of spiders, all of the common phobias are things that could kill you. In other conditions like obsessive compulsive disorder, where, for example, someone might be compulsively washing their hands because they're scared of illness or compulsively checking the stovetop because they're scared of fire. In illness anxiety or panic disorder, where people are they'll notice their heart starts to to race and they'll worry. It's a heart attack, for example. A lot of the common anxiety disorders seem to stem from this fear of death. So if we can start helping these people accept death, it's likely that their other kind of mental health symptoms are going to reduce. Now, that's, of course, specific to people who have diagnosed anxiety disorders. But even in general, we know that Reduced death anxiety is associated with reduced depression, with better overall well being, with better psychological and physical health. So, if we can start to try and accept death, even in really small ways, even just trying to open up this conversation with a loved one, or watching a movie or a documentary to do with death, reading a book about it, this can help us start to achieve a better quality life.
0: We'll be back with Dr. Rachel Menzies in just a moment. Um, we do have to stop the show for a sec to play some ads. We You might hear some ads, you might not hear some ads. It all depends on where you're listening and how you're listening. But we are going to offer an ad-free version of the podcast very soon. So I'll let you know about that in coming weeks. There's also live shows where we can be together in the same room. Um, Melbourne, first week of April, Brisbane, third week of April. I'll have the dates for you this week. I would ask you one thing. If this podcast does bring you value, if this conversation is something that you think, you know what, my mate, Gavin, he'd appreciate this, you know, hit share. If your friend's not, Gavin, I don't know. Hit share in the top corner of your podcast app and just text it to someone or send it as a DM or put it up as a post or... Or just mention it to someone in conversation or, you know, tell the person, tell the doctor, whatever you're having a chat with, whoever you're having a chat with this week, just let them know. Oh, yeah, I listened to a podcast about that this week. Yeah, there it is. There it is. Show them to on their phone. There it is. That's how you do it. Off you go. That helps us enormously. So, as I said, we do have to pay the bills. We do have to keep the lights on here. There's plenty of people that help me make this show and they don't work for free because they're very good at what they do. So, you might hear an ad here. If you do, thank you. If not, we'll keep rolling on with Dr. Rachel Menzies. how can i work a meditation on my own death into my daily routine like how can i put three, five minutes into my day, is there a method of doing this? Like For example, like I've worked gratitude and training my brain to see things positively into my daily routine. I get up every morning, I have a cup of coffee, I write down things that went really well yesterday. I'm training my brain to see positives in situations. And over time, it has had enormous effect on the way that I see the world. Is there a, an equivalent, like a three or five minute exercise that we can do every day?
3: Yeah. So there would be a few options. So in Buddhism, for example, a common meditation practice is vividly imagining your own corpse decaying. Now, maybe that's a bit full on for your your morning, you know, getting ready for work routine, but that would be an example of, of trying to really imagine the idea of my body decaying. Now, you might do different versions of that. You might be imagining what would be said at your funeral and using that to help guide your day. You know, if I take a couple of minutes to think about picturing my tombstone, picturing what might be on that tombstone... And can I live today in a way that would be in line with what I want people to remember me for, for instance? Anything like that, anything that's either kind of imagining the end of life, imagining the tombstone. And we know from research that exposure therapy is the most effective way to reduce fears of death. And this can involve things like imagining my funeral, imagining myself on my deathbed. So that would be, I guess, one way if you were wanting a kind of three to five minute, regular exercise is just imagining something to do with the end of life such as those things
0: when you and you've mentioned it twice now when you mentioned the number of hours that i have left alive i've felt a shudder go through my body and even like this is someone who's told you like, like i and i know i know how i want to die i, I you mm. know I, I know what kind of life I, i'm very aware that it's going to happen i accept that it might happen every time i ride my bicycle but it still sends a shudder through my body when you when you talk about it like that it's still do you still get hit by it like you're someone who researches death anxiety and fear of death and you've written books on the subject like do you still get hit by it
3: yeah definitely definitely and that's why i guess i try and do it to to really keep reminding myself this gig is not going to last forever so am i happy with what i'm doing right now you know do i really want to get into this argument on twitter with this stranger over this trivial thing or is there something more productive I could be doing right now? Now, I don't always pick the right choice there, but I do still get hit by it. And particularly having those apps that prompt you at random times with a reminder, I might be, again, doing something that feels really important, getting stressed about a deadline. And then that comes up, you know, remember you will die or something on my, on my phone. And it is that moment of, okay, shit, what am I doing here? Let's get my priorities in order right now. So I do still get hit by it. And, you know, particularly when you hear of those kind of deaths we see as being particularly shocking, particularly tragic, you know, young people dying, for example, it does still definitely hit me. But I try and use it, I guess, as that that reminder to take stock of what I'm doing right now and really think about what do I want to do with the time I have left.
0: We can choose, uh, in the words of Bill Hicks, we can choose to see the world through the eyes of fear or the eyes of love. All it takes is a blink. We can decide to see how we see absolutely everything. What's the inverse of fear of death? What's the inverse of, of denial of death and what does, that, what does that bring you?
3: I suppose it would be anywhere between acceptance and celebration. You know, I don't have to celebrate death. I don't have to feel happy about it. But because I can't control it, I need to try and accept it. And there are places around the world that do actually celebrate it. You know, in Mexico and other countries in that region, they have festivals like the Day of the Dead, where it's not just an acceptance or commemoration of the dead, but it really is a celebration of it. They will party, they will meet with family, picnic in cemeteries. That, that real celebration of death as just the natural flip side of, of life brings you much more sense of peace and a much better ability to cope when we do inevitably lose people that we love. So that fear response is a really natural response. It's something that has been with our species for thousands and thousands of years. But can we try and take steps to move in the other direction?
0: Knowing that I was speaking to you today really, it changed my evening because last night we watched Wolfie who's just over two we watched him play hide and seek for the very first time with his big sister he counted to three and then he went and found her and it was the most incredible most cute wonderful 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 thing uh, I think I've ever seen watching this this keto I've known for a long time and this little one who's just come into our lives Mm -hmm. playing together and shall we say there's been some medical procedures that means Audrey and I will never have another child and so for half a second I was super sad That I'd never get to see a kid do that for the first time again. And then I was like, but isn't that amazing? Mm -hmm. You've just witnessed this moment in history in this kid's life. And I was so grateful because I knew I was talking to you and it gave me this opportunity to reframe that moment and go, ah, but isn't that incredible? You just saw it. And it just changed it completely because otherwise it would have been overtaken with the sadness of, well, shop's closed, you know, mm. boo-hoo. Instead, I was able to just reflect in this. And that was just, so, A, thanks for doing this today because it allowed, it gave me that last night. But I, I, I would hope that people might be able to hear me talk about that and perhaps use that as a, as a way of, of maybe reframing the kind of stuff you're talking about.
3: Mm, mm. I think that's a really good example of, you know, making the most of each moment and seeing it as a gift rather than a tragedy that it'll one day end.
0: It's wild when you start thinking about how much of our current world situation is driven by the denial of death. And I'm sure you'd be able to reverse engineer, for example, our current climate policy on denial of death mm. you know can can you see it can you see like in we have leadership in Australia who are like nope nope coal fossil fuels off we go is there denial of death in that
3: absolutely absolutely I think a, a lot of people including a lot of politicians can't really grab their head around the fact that we are mortal and that we are not There is no guarantee we will be here forever. And so we will continue to do things that destroy the planet because of this erroneous sense of our own significance and immortality. And I think we've seen this come up with COVID as well, you know, that there are some people who go down that denial route of this isn't real, this isn't happening, God will protect me or my immune system will protect me because it just seems so unbelievable to us that we might not be here forever. So denial is a really classic response and I completely agree. I think we see that with politicians all around the world.
0: What would, let's so say, what would a prime minister of Australia who is in full acceptance of death, what would he or she, how would he or she maybe do things differently, do you think?
3: Look, it's hard to say. I think a lot of things might have been done very, very differently. I mean, I think climate the climate change is a really clear example where I think someone who is in complete acceptance of death, you know, ironically would probably actually be taking much more strident steps in terms of managing climate change. And COVID's a really tricky case where there's this this juggling of this desire to preserve as much life as possible, but then also the flip side of that, of some of the ways it's actually made people's quality of life not quite so good, you know, particularly for those in nursing homes who are then isolated and cut off from loved ones, for example. So there's no easy solution, I don't think. But particularly with things like climate change, I think is a really good example of how, if we keep denying death, we are, you know, ironically, we're going to die as a species. That <laughs> we need to really accept this to take it seriously.
0: How does denial of death keep us doing patterns of behaviour that might not be good for us?
3: That's a really good question. So, if I don't believe that I'm really going to die, I'm probably going to do things that ironically could increase my risk of death. And particularly if those things are tied to my self-esteem. So we talked earlier about how having kind of a a sense of your own self-worth and significance, having high self-esteem protects you from the fear of death because you feel like you're a significant person who will be remembered by your culture. Now, if I get my self-esteem from behaviours that are actually risky behaviours, such as smoking or sun tanning or driving really fast i'm actually going to be more likely to do those things when i'm reminded of death so when people who love tanning for instance are given subtle reminders of death they actually say that they want to tan more they're less interested in buying sunscreen and wearing sunscreen or people who smoke when they're given subtle reminders of death if smoking is really central to that person's self-esteem they are more interested in in going to have a smoke after that reminder of death. So it sounds a bit counterintuitive, but if my self-esteem comes from things which might kill me, I'm still going to do that thing because when I smoke or when I drive really fast or when I spend hours in the sun, it gives me a sense that I'm a significant, cool, likeable person who's going to be remembered after I die.
0: If I'm always represented the coal lobby, and that is who I am. I'm the guy who's the champion of the Minerals Council. And I go to parliament and go, no, no, no. Here's $600 million for a, you know, gas plant or whatever. Therefore, I am good. I'm still that guy. Yeah. You know, in yeah. complete denial of economic, social and thermodynamic science.
3: Yes, that's that's a great comparison. That's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, we're fucked. <laughs> <laughs> there's hope. I like to think there's hope for us. I think people are more and more willing to talk about this topic. I think one of the few good things that's come out of COVID is people are talking about death a lot more. And so I, I like to think we've still got a chance of of making some progress here and and undoing some of the damage that we've done as a species.
0: Rachel, I could talk to you for ages about this, but I'm so grateful that you're doing this work and that you're putting the work out there. And even just having this conversation, it might be the first time that a lot of people have even considered that their fear of death or not wanting to talk about death is actually impacting their happiness, their day-to-day life, their consumer choices, the way they interact with their family. And that it is, as you mentioned, at the root of so many things that kind of stand in the way between us and having a joyful day. I won't say existence because we don't know how today is going to end. <laughs> 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 so thank you so much. It's been absolutely fascinating to to talk to you. This has been great. Thanks heaps, Rachel.
3: Thanks so much for having me on. It's been great to chat about it.
0: That was Dr. Rachel Menzies. Her latest book is called Curing the Dread of Death, Theory, Research and Practice. It's a good book. Good listen, that. Good chat. I needed to have it. I need to get reminded of a lot of things that we spoke about there. A great book. It's a really good book too. I thoroughly recommend it. And I guess I'd also encourage you to just start to try to maybe meditate on your own death. I know it sounds grim because we're kind of taught to avoid those sorts of things, but try to try to have a conversation with yourself about your own death. If it's, if it's too hard, think if you've got pets... I remember I did this the first time first time in my life I ever did this with with my cats back when I had cats I can't have cats now Audrey and Georgia are hellishly allergic but I remember going oh wow I'm going to live longer than you are I really like you cat you're really fun we cuddle all the time and we play fetch and it's fun but you're going to die probably in the next four years you're going to die because he was six I think at the time oh shit and it made me really sad but at the same time I'm like well I better cuddle you now because I'll miss you when you're gone. And I guess that was how I started thinking about this stuff. I didn't get into the really good stuff until I really needed to when my avoidance of my own mortality was causing me great pain. But if you can't get in there, you know, it, yeah, it's sad. It's super sad. So even though you probably heard him just there, if you've got an annoying barky cavoodle like I do, pat him. Pat him because he'll be dead soon and you'll miss even though he's barky and annoying, you'll miss patting him because it's nice when you pat him. You feel good. He feels good. It's nice. And then you kind of move up. You could start at a house plant if you're not ready to go with your pets, you know, and eventually get to the people around you, you know, people a few degrees of separation away from you and then slowly coming in and in to your friends and then your family and then maybe your kids, maybe yourself. Think about your end-of-life care, you know, really important. Think about that. Think about your advanced health directive. If you haven't got one, I don't care how old you are. If you haven't got one, like I said to you at the start of the show, no one goes to work today thinking, you know, today's the day I'm going to have an accidental traumatic head injury through no fault of myself or anyone. It's just going to be a freak accident. And then my family are going to be put in a horrible, horrible, horrible decision-making process where they decide whether or not to turn a machine off to kill me. Nobody leaves the house in the morning thinking about that. But there are people on machines today, as I speak, that that happened to. And their families are like, fucking hell, what do we do? So write your advanced health directive. Won't take you long. Sit down with your doctor and get it done. The amount of pain and anguish that you'll save your family is immeasurable. And it's a loving gift that you could give them. And do it. Do it now. If you can, think about your own kids. Think about the mortality of your own kids. And within reason, be there. If they want your attention, if they want to do stuff, if they want to engage with you, put your fucking phone down. <laughs> Watch your show later. Do whatever it is you've got to do later because they are literally, I'm going to be that young today. I, I thought about because I knew this episode was coming up and yesterday was a big day here in our house. Man, Wolf, I got the be out and Wolf and I, we dismantled his cot, pulled his cot apart and then we pulled with his big bed, the, the, we left the box for his new big bed in the room and the mattress box in his room for a couple of days. So he knew it was coming. And then he and I, we, you know, we built the big bed together and we unpacked the mattress. And it's only when I pulled the cot out of the room in bits and pieces, I was like, shit, I never took a photo of the cot. Cause when it's in that room, that room's just for sleep and, and stories and dark and, and resting time. We never really play in there. So. And now it's gone. That moment's gone. It's never coming back. He's never getting back in a cot. I'm never leaning over a railing to put him in his cot ever again, ever. And I was kind of sad about that, but I never took a picture of it. And it's gone forever. But at least I was, you know, I remember that I was there with those moments, you know. And it's like that, you know, one day, big bed, that's it. Gone. If meditating on the death of your kids is too, too hard, this was a, a good way that I was given to me. Stav, who used to work, with, told me this. He said, one day after carrying your child, you'll put them down and you won't know it, but that'll be the last time you've ever picked them up because they're just too heavy and you physically can't do it. So every time you carry them, as they get bigger, carry them like it's the last time you'll ever carry them. And I guess that's a way to kind of find a way to get into it. Like this is, might be the last time I ever hold them like this. And that's important because it makes that moment when you're holding them even more amazing. It's heavy, but it's worth it. All right? It's heavy going, but it's worth it. Hey, Wednesday, we're back here with a quick version of the show as we go through the back catalogue. Bree, who works on research and production support here, Brie is helping me go through the back catalogue and, and she's finding some of her favourite episodes and I'm loving going through it with her ears. Erin Brockovich is on Wednesday. Yeah. The Aaron, That Erin Aaron Brokovich, her, she's on Wednesday, and it's so good, so good. I can't wait for you to hear it. If you haven't heard the full episode, it's okay. It's only 20 minutes long, and it'll give you a taster. Massive thanks to everybody that helped me make the show. Thank you to Andy Marr, my audio producer who cut this one up, uh, cuts all of them up. Thank you to Toe on the music, Bree Steele on research production and support, and, of course, Rachel Barrett. The executive producer of everything that I do, the woman who's the powerhouse, who's currently calling up venues in Brisbane and Melbourne and saying, Listen, I know this, can we organize? Yes, I know it's weird, but that's what he wants to do for the show. You reckon you can do it? Yep. Yeah. And then she calls me back and goes, They can do it. I'm like, Great. Because, <laughs> yeah, I just come up with wacky ideas and she goes, I can make that happen. But like, I can't do any of this without Rachel. So get yourself a Rachel. She's the best. Rachel Barrett is the executive producer of everything that I do that you don't see on television, and she's amazing. Yet, she's working with me on some TV projects at the moment, and it's pretty cool. So I'm I'm grateful. Rachel and Lauren and I, we make a pretty good team, and I'm pretty stoked about what we're doing there. So, Rachel, thank you. And thank you for listening, because without you, there is no show. That's plain and simple. Look after yourself. I'll see you on Wednesday with Erin Brockovich. Until we speak next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things.